Father, gracious, loving Father, here we are this morning. And we come just to be in your presence and say, good, good Father. We love you. And we're ready to hear, ready to learn, ready to decide, ready to change, ready, ready to consider, to reconsider. Help us with all of that, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, welcome to all of you who have joined us via the live stream. In just a little bit, we'll have some questions and answers. And we'll be praying for prayer requests. So if you have any input on any of that, if you'd like to submit a prayer request for the end or close of service, if you want to um, participate in the Q&A, please get us that information. You can do that by texting us at 720-878-3323 or you can type it into the chat window where others right now have been corresponding already. So again, great to have you with us. I'm Jeff. We've been in a series called Seven Things Christians Believe That the Bible Doesn't Say and today is part five. I'm going to talk about the Bible, the subject of inerrancy, and Jesus. The Bible Jesus. I have a question I want to begin with. I believe they're going to put it up there on the screen for you. What does the Bible entail? And is it possible for an individual to experience a relationship with Jesus independently of that? What do you think? Is it possible for an individual to experience a relationship with Jesus independently of the Bible? What about in countries, communities, jungles, situations, a hospital, where somebody's turned their heart to God, but there is no Bible. Is God going to hold them off and say, now wait, you've you got to get a King James Bible. You've got to read the book of John, <laughs> the book of Genesis, where it all kind of starts, and you've got to find out more about Jesus before I can really talk to you now. The doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture was created by man when the mediation of Christ became insufficient. The words of T.F. Torrance, a dear friend of mine, Pastor Wes, who's the pastor of the St. John's Lutheran Church here, said, and I quote, in my studies as a Lutheran pastor, I've come to realize the difference between high context and low context dialogue. As Lutherans, he said, we don't wrestle with words like inerrancy and infallibility. And I say, amen. <laughs> How awesome is that? You know, the Jewish rabbis and theologians never dealt with the word inerrancy or infallibility. It never entered their mind because they don't view the Bible as a legal constitution from God dictating correct beliefs and moral behavior. In my study, 
I've found that the New Testament believers did not embrace the concept of modern, Western, biblical inerrancy because they were taught that the purpose of Scripture was to point them to a perfect Jesus and not to a perfect manuscript. I've received criticism for my position. It goes something like this. You only choose authors who agree with your interpretation. It's essential for me to address that criticism. Contrary to the assumption, I'm now exploring authors with diverse perspectives, including those who hold views different from the ones that I was originally taught, compelled to follow, and discouraged from challenging. This new approach broadens my understanding and it fosters a more open-minded exploration of various ideas. Actually, this approach has made me more loving and caring for people, just like Jesus. You know, early Christians valued the scriptures as inspired and authoritative, but their emphasis wasn't on encountering their emphasis, excuse me, was on encountering, encountering the living word, Jesus Christ, rather than on the precise textual accuracy of the scriptures themselves. The New Testament writings, along with the Old Testament, were seen as a means to connect with the truth, with love, with the teachings of Jesus, rather than being infallible or an inerrant document. It just wasn't important to them. They didn't argue that. And your exposure to the idea of biblical inerrancy and infallibility is new. In fact, it's very new. In fact, it's a very American thing. This isn't nearly the issue in the East for Eastern brethren as it is for us here in Western evangelicalism. Let me ask you another question. How, how many of you encountered God before you opened the Bible? How, huh? How many of you encountered God before you ever opened the Bible and read it? Let me ask you another question. Did Abraham come to know God by reading the Bible? <laughs> Can you imagine Abraham traveling through the land of Cana, right? And he pulls out his New Testament and starts reading about Jesus. Oh, i got to get saved. Did Moses come to know God by reading the Bible? Did Paul come to know God or Jesus by reading a Bible? <laughs> In fact, the Bible, he said, had a veil over his eyes. The, the scripture that was available to Paul at the time, he said, veiled his eyes and prevented him from knowing the living Christ. And I submit to you, it's no different today. Here's our text. And you're not ready for this. I didn't know this was in my Bible. I've, I, I've, I've been preaching 45 years. And for 30 probably five to 38 of those. I didn't even know this was in my Bible. 
This is John chapter 5, verse 38 through 40 from the message translation. Let's look together. These very tasks, as I go about completing them, confirm that the Father, in fact, sent me. The Father who sent me confirmed me. And you missed it. You never heard his voice. You never saw his appearance. There is nothing left in your memory of his message because you do not take his messenger seriously. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly. You have your head in your Bibles constantly because you think that you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right in front of you. We should give some definition to four different words. You ready? Here we go. Inerrancy. What's that mean? Well, biblical inerrancy is best defined by a group known as the Southern Baptists. And this is the Southern Baptist statement regarding, at least in part, it's not the full statement, it was way too long, but this is in part from that statement. Quote, the scriptures of Old and New Testaments are without error or misstatement in their moral and spiritual teaching and record of historical facts. The belief that the Bible is without error or fault in its teaching, or at least that the scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. In fact, in quotes, some of them, some individuals, and I certainly used to be one, equate inerrancy with biblical infallibility, and some don't. Now, numerous individuals with strong religious convictions hold a particular interpretation of the Bible that reflects their personal beliefs about its meaning. Those whose views appear to diverge from this interpretation often find themselves unwelcome in those churches. I have felt unwelcomed in some churches because of things that I believed differently or practiced differently. Now, feeling unwelcome and being unwelcomed, like as in being told to leave, or as in people leaving because of a different point of view, is a very unfortunate situation in the church of Jesus today. But it exists. In fact, for some, in their perspective of, a perspective of the Bible, there are even litmus tests regarding faith and their faith and whether the faith you have is real faith. Let's talk about some. Here's one, that Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross as a substitution for my sin. Now, we've already been through that in part two and part three of this series. But that is something that Christians widely believe that just isn't true. The Bible doesn't say it. But boy, that is a litmus test. You've got to believe that or you're not of us. Number two, that all the stories in the Bible are historically accurate and literally true. That, that just isn't necessary for you to have a relationship with Jesus to believe that. Here's another one. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment where all non-believers go. That's a litmus test for some people regarding the scripture and whether it's infallible. 
whether whether you really believe the right thing whether you're a true christian or not do you believe in hell do you hold to the quote scriptural view of hell excuse me but there are a number of scriptural views of hell here's another one a perspective that some use as a litmus test for whether your faith is true faith no normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament. So God is not still talking or revealing supernaturally or in your circumstances. God doesn't do that. He only speaks through the Bible, the quote, word of God. That's a very unfortunate thing to live under. And number five, just as an example of some perspectives regarding the Bible that are considered a litmus test. Number five, the earth's age is literally 6,000 years old and scientific statements to the contrary are hypothesis. There's a great deal of ignorance amongst Christians. And I find a higher level of ignorance among Western evangelicals. I submit to you that God never imposed the burden of infallibility or inerrancy upon Scripture. An objective and intellectually honest analysis of the Bible would recognize the existence of various errors concerning translation, authorship, factual accuracy, and historical reliability. There's churches that even have different books of the Bible. There's the Protestant Bible, which has only been in existence since 1500 AD. It's the one that you generally have at home and read. But the Catholic Bible, did you know the Catholic Bible has at least eight other books in it that the Protestant Bible doesn't have? Did you know that the Ethiopian, Ethiopian and Orthodox Bible translations have additional books that not the that the Protestant and the Catholic Bibles don't have and they consider them inspired no it's bless God it's the King James version of the Bible that we Protestants steeped in Western evangelism believe evangelicalism I wonder if maybe this isn't something to get all bent about and rather what we should celebrate is that it simply points us to Jesus all scripture does our text our text you have your head in your Bibles because you believe that it's going to accomplish this and I'm standing right before you okay now let me get myself in deep water <laughs> oh. I don't know why I'm predisposed to teaching this way. I've been thinking more about this in the, previ in the last, well, this year for sure than ever before. Why am I predisposed towards topics that challenge theology? I don't know. I, I'm supposed to be, supposed to get in the pulpit and preach messages of hope and money and success and God you know everything is going to be alright and so forth and I love songs like that I just don't teach very much like that <laughs> I don't know 
But here's one for you, okay? The Bible is not the word of God. I said it there. The Bible is not the word of God. And Paul didn't believe it was the word of God. In fact, Paul once thought that the way he read scriptures authorized him to kill Christians. And while doing so, all the while be glorifying God. That's Paul's take on the scripture that he should be killing Christians. Hitler believed that he was following God's will in purging society of a defect and threat. Crusaders believed that they were spreading the gospel and getting rid of the infidels. Slave traders in this country, not that long ago in our total history, slave traders and owners believed that they were obeying the commands of the New Testament while glorifying the Savior in elevating a lower species of human being. And my wife and I have just recently watched the most heart-wrenching movie. Tills? Till. That was the last name of the 14-year-old black man, boy, that was murdered back in the 1950s. And the trial that resulted, it's heart-wrenching. And all I could think as I watched was, that's me. We're one flesh. We're one body. The body's not divided. In that that happened to him, that happened to me. Here's another one. Women keep silent in the church. Women, you keep your silence in the church. That's been taught from the scriptures. In the book of Psalms, it teaches us to pray for catastrophe on your enemy and to smash the head of babies against a rock. Numerous passages in the Old Testament seem to depict God as a wrathful God, executing vengeance and punishment upon his enemies and sinners through horrific violence, atrocities, so brutal that even Hollywood avoids it. All in the name of a conservative, evangelical interpretation of the Bible that says it is inerrant and it is infallible as we read it now today in the King James Version. Let's talk about the word infallible. It's never used in the scripture. Never stated, not once. Only God is infallible. Only the Holy Spirit is infallible. Many evangelicals believe that since the Bible's inspired and God-breathed, that that makes it perfect because God is perfect. Not so. Greg Boyd said, and I quote, the concept of inerrancy seems more at home in fields of discourse in which getting things exactly right is the highest priority. It feels natural for scientists engaging in a laboratory experiment or for scholars compiling a lexicon or for socialists compiling statistical reports to speak about committing no errors. But while I can imagine a covenant that includes as part of its terms the promise to never make an error, this is quite out of place in the real world of covenant making and especially in the discourse surrounding biblical covenants. In the language of biblical covenants, one promises to place their trust in the trustworthy character 
of their covenant partner. And one promises to cultivate a trustworthy character in relationship to their covenant partner. This, in fact, is what the biblical concept of faith is all about. Not perfection, covenant. Unfortunately, these concepts of inerrancy and infallibility have inspired worship of a fourth entity. You know what it is? God the Father, God the Son, and help me complete that. Oh, God the Holy Spirit, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And number four is, and God the Bible. Mm -hmm. In fact, some, some do it this way, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. Because after all, this is God's word. This is the Spirit speaking to us. So they just eliminate the Holy Spirit and experience. Because keep in mind, there is no current revelation. There is nothing supernatural going on that reveals the Father further. That all stopped with the New Testament. All right, let's talk about inspired. Now this is biblical, that word, inspired. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Amen. The Bible is inspired. God breathed it. God lets his people tell their stories through their personalities, their fears, their anger, their hopes, their dreams, and their brokenness. And yes, their hatred of other human beings. But that doesn't mean it's God speaking that. Yes, it's inspired, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Meaning, God has breathed through these books, not dictated. God breathed his ideas, his character, his will through these books. He didn't dictate them word for word. His purpose is that we would grow in our relationship as sons and disciples. Number four. A flat reading. A flat reading. Many evangelicals believe in a flat reading of the Bible. What do I mean by a flat reading? This is the belief that all Scripture should be read literally and with equal value, regardless of the genre, culture, or author's original tent. In his teachings... Jesus actually challenges the scriptures of his time in this idea of flat reading with a statement like this. Watch. He said it often during the Beatitudes. You have heard it said, and then he would quote the scripture of the Old Testament. But I say to you, what's he doing? He's elevating his word above scripture. Jesus elevated his word above that of the scripture. You have heard it said, he was referring to Old Testament scripture, promise principles, I should say, moral values, but I say to you, clearly there's not an equality if but I, if but I is equal, then there'd be no but. He would have just said, now, scriptures say, and I agree, and you should change your behavior. No. He said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Not all scripture is the same. Watch this. Hebrews chapter 8. We'll have it on the screen. But as it is, 
Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Excuse me just a minute. I made an adjustment to my screen. And I apologize. Let me get back to it now. Okay. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much, much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since he enacted it on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Notice, he finds fault with them. Who finds fault with them? God finds fault with them. What does he find fault with? The very scriptures that are purportedly written word for word as he dictated them to the Old Testament authors. He found fault with them and said, I'm going to create a new covenant when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah verse 9 not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand brought them out of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant so I showed no concern for them go back to Greg Boyd's comment bring the scripture down please when you consider what Greg Boyd said what, what did he say it, it's not about perfection it's not about literalism. It's about covenant. And covenants are messy. Oh, I don't know if you heard me. Boy, that was good. That's not even my notes. <laughs> Write that down, somebody, and send it to me. <laughs> People believe in a literal, infallible scripture, and God changed it. Jesus said, I have something new, better. It's not about infallibility or a correct document. It's about covenants, and covenants are messy. All right, verse 9, continuing. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I'll write them into their hearts. Doesn't sound like an infallible, infallible, inerrant scripture that we're supposed to follow. And I will be their God, and they will, shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. See, this will change the way you evangelize. You're not supposed to go out and say, You need to know the Lord. You need to come and read the Bible and find out who Jesus is and then repent of your sin and believe on him like I do and get saved. You're not going to do that any longer because I'm going to write my scripture. I'm going to write the knowledge about me inside them on their hearts and on their minds. So stop doing that. Stop telling people they're wrong. Stop trying to evangelize people to believe like you do. <laughs> All right, so I know there's plenty of criticism around a position like this, especially when I say the Bible is not the Word of God, which I'll explain. Pastor Jeff, then how can anything I read in the Bible be true and reliable? 
You see, when our approach to the Bible is to discover the crucified Christ, God's cruciform love, and our being hidden in him, then it's perfectly natural to speak of scriptures as never failing, even when by certain standards they do. Let me give you an example of scripture that will never fail. Quote, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's infallible. <laughs> That's in the Bible. How about this one? Jesus said it. Come unto me, all you who, are heavy, uh, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a promise you can count on. It's infallible. How about this one? Even when you are faithless, he remains faithful. That's infallible. And I get it. And so we can look at Scripture in that way. But see, that's all pointing towards Jesus as the one who is perfect, not the particular Scripture, not the particular author who wrote it or any such thing. My relationship is not with a doctrine. God so loved the world that he sent a book. Right? John 3.16, help me. God so loved, say it, God so loved the world that he gave a book. No. And keep in mind that the book you call the Bible has only existed since the 1500s. That's scary. What did they do in Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the earth as they went around preaching Jesus without a Bible. Oh, no. <laughs> what did they do? How'd they get saved? How'd they grow up in Christ? God so loved the world that he didn't send a book. He sent his son, Jesus. So when it comes to interpretation, Paul reads the scripture with allegory, pointing it to Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In fact, he takes creative license here. He doesn't even quote it verbatim. He says that Jesus is the rock that followed them. How, how does it point to Jesus? How does it help me be Christ-like? That's what he's asking. How does that text you're reading in the Old Testament point me to Jesus? How does it help me be Christ-like? He quoted a passage out of the Bible, out of Exodus, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, his letter to the Corinthians, he didn't even quote it verbatim. He used creative license, and he applied it to Christ in two ways. How does this point me to Jesus, and how does it help me be more Christ-like? And that's beautiful. It doesn't mean it's inerrant. It doesn't mean it's infallible. Does that help anybody? Or am I just up here blowing wind? I'm having a good time. Has anybody ever heard of origin? No, not that origin. <laughs> I'm not talking about your beginning. I'm talking about an early church father in the two to three hundreds who was just a generation away from the last living apostle who actually walked with Jesus. And here's what he said speaking to his students and to other church fathers. And I quote, Before you open your Bible... This is the commitment I want you to make ahead of time. Number one, God is completely, only good. Number two, God is only Christ-like. Number three, 
If you read a passage in the Bible about God, which is not Christ-like, and you take it literally, you create an idol and a monstrous blasphemy. <laughs> That's how Origen understood the reading of the text. That obviously means it's not perfect. It's not inf it's fallible, let me say that. It's fallible. What we have received as an inheritance is the notion that to be faithful we must interpret it literally. That's, that's what's been taught to us all. And it's not true. In 380, St. John Christom said this, to read it literally when it's unchristlike is monstrous blasphemy, agreeing with origin. See, Jews debate and struggle and argue over community, not over whether the Bible is the word of God. Let me ask you something. Which is more important? A legal constitution or a, or a document for worship? A legal constitution or a relationship with the one to whom all these scriptures point to in the first place? Which is more important? Leading people to, cor to a correct set of beliefs or believing in the one who is eternal life? Which, by the way, how did the early church and early Christians believe, live, follow, grow, and worship without a book of worship? They had no Bible. How'd they do that? Which is more important, loving a correct system of religious ideologies or falling in love with the one who created you? Which is more important, being able to brag that you possess a book that has no errors or being possessed by a God who will never leave you and will always love you? Here we go. My last statement. We'll go to a couple of questions. Ready? Is your goal to bring people into a correct and acceptable understanding of a translation of a book or to introduce them into a living relationship with the one who is the word of God? So when I said the Bible is not the word of God, the rest of that statement is Jesus is. Jesus alone is the Word of God. Questions? Comments? We have a microphone. We'll make our way around the room. I have a couple of questions for you. Barb and Jim are watching from Hawaii. Greetings, everybody. Aloha. Good morning to you. All right. I don't see anything in the chat window directly, and so I'm going to ask our first question. Okay, go ahead. We'll bring the mic to Nina. Oh, is it? Do we need to replace the batteries? Battery very low. Oh, are they very Check. low? Could we get another? Mike, please. Back when you were talking about <clears throat> things we've ascribed to, like slavery, annihilating people in the name of Jesus, you know, to get every, if they weren't going to believe, they were going to be annihilated. So Darcy said, and don't forget the doctrine of discovery, mm. which I believe was from the Pope, if I remember correctly. Is that right, Darcy? Yeah. yeah that allowed Europeans to take over North America and remove native peoples. 
all in the name of Jesus. Authorized by the Pope at that time, the doctrine of discovery, under which they annihilated whole groups, whole tribes of native Indians. The doctrine of discovery, all on the authority of Scripture, the Word of God, right? No. All right, first question. Since the Jewish rabbis and theologians as well as early Christians, never dealt with the word inerrancy, nor were they concerned with the infallibility of Scripture. What was their emphasis? Anybody? You can type it into the chat, send it via text, or if you're here, go ahead and respond. And, and be direct now. Don't, don't go somewhere else in the question or area with the comment. We're asking specifically, what was their emphasis if it wasn't on inerrancy red or what Ooh. Um, I think when I think about it I think that their, their emphasis obviously I didn't know any of them I believe it must have been relationship I think even when you're talking about not just relationship with God but relationship with each other mm. uh, the discourse that happens between two people who are discussing scripture whether or not you agree on what it means the process of of you know i don't know if arguing is the right word but the process of debating mm -hmm. uh what is right and wrong causes you to focus on spiritual things and yeah. it, it forces you to grow and and consider and i think that that is the power of the scripture beautiful that's the power in the scripture jeff throw that answer up would you Early Christians valued the scriptures as inspired and authoritative, but their emphasis was on encountering the living word, Jesus Christ, rather than on the precise textual accuracy of the scriptures themselves. Second question we're going to ask, can you think of a particular biblical value held by some Christians which might be considered a litmus test of faith and belief in the inerrancy of the Bible? I mentioned several. You don't have to explain them, just anything come to mind? Anybody remember? The reality of hell. The reality of hell. Eternal conscious torment. There is, hell exists. There is a hell. There is hell. Um, blood sacrifice for sins. Blood sacrifice for sin. Anything else? Anything else that we had mentioned? Yeah, throw that up, Jeff. Here's here's a quick answer. Penal substitution, hell, the age of the earth, revelation and spiritual gifts ceasing with the writing of the New Testament. Right? Our next question. What is meant by the statement, the Bible is not the word of God you can answer that in a couple of words Lisa yes Lisa wants to answer no <laughs> no Lisa doesn't <laughs> what is meant by the statement the Bible is not the word of God it's probably on we're just getting to it in the back well I think they trying to say that the uh, 
the word itself is not not from God. Is that what they were trying to say? Okay. But uh, I know that Jesus says that he is the word. And, you know, and so um, that's what I go by is what Jesus said, that he is the word. So let me ask you a question. As we think about John, the first chapter, where it's kind of dealing with Genesis-like big world view, all right? It says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah, and they're talking about Jesus. Oh, it's talking about Jesus. Okay, so it's not the Bible became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the Jesus became flesh. Jesus is called the Word. The Bible, more correctly, should be called the Scriptures. Old and New Testament, and the Scriptures are a collection of 66 different books, not one. The Bible is not one book. 66 different books, and it's made up of lots of different kinds of literature, poems and history and prophecy and and, and, and analogies and allegories and all psalms and hymns, all kinds of things. Our final question is this. What might be more important in our life of faith than bringing people into a correct and acceptable understanding of a Bible translation? What might be more important than being overly concerned with whether people believe correctly about the Bible. Is there something more important? All right. I couldn't hear that, but I heard it, but it wasn't on the mic, so I will repeat it. A relationship with God. Anybody else? Well, the person who just said that was also the person who puts up the slides. And here's the slide (laughs) answer. Here is the slide. (laughs) You know, I got to have fun with you. All right, all right. All right. Sure, Jim, sure. He says he didn't even look at it. Oh, I believe you, brother. I I believe you. Honest heart. You have honest eyes. You have an honest, honest eyes, honest smile. Yes, good handshake cut your hair recently. You look good. Look good. <laughs> All right, everybody, we're going to have a time of prayer. So Nina. Please.